Hello, and welcome to The Stakes. I'm Holly Anderson. I'm the Director of Politics and News here at MTV News. And in this, the very first episode of our political podcast, we're going to hear conversation and commentary that covers stories that are in the news and stories that aren't but should be. We've got a great lineup this week. Jamil Smith is here to talk about the intersection of race, politics, and skin-tight costumes with the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. Jane Coaston and Anna Marie Cox will tell us exactly how Prince wants us to feel, and Marcus Ellsworth reveals who he's afraid to find lurking in the bathroom. But first, Julianne Ross brings us to the worst corner of the internet. Welcome to The Stakes. We hope you like it. As long as there is an internet, there will be internet comments. And as long as there are internet comments, there will be complete fucking assholes saying terrible, inexcusable things. And at this point, none of us need to be told, although this keeps being presented as though it's somehow news, the worst of the worst comments are almost exclusively directed at women. MTV's deputy political editor, Julianne Ross, reached out to writer Soraya Shamali to talk about a piece she recently co-authored for The Verge that delves into the history behind internet comments and the struggle to balance community management and free speech. Hey, Soraya. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Um, yeah, so you and journalist Catherine Booney wrote this really fascinating article for The Verge about the history of comment moderation on the internet. Um, and I think there's a really clear connection here between this issue of digital moderation and the issue of digital harassment. Um, and I know you're also a feminist activist, so I'm wondering if that was part of what drew you to this topic. <laughs> um, yes, I think probably it was more like a sucking rather than a drawing. <laughs> it was kind of an inevitable path. Um, when I started writing, uh, it, I just kind of didn't expect, uh, I didn't expect the response to what I felt were pretty benign things. I was initially writing a lot about um, childhood gender expectations and um, almost immediately started being uh, threatened online and that was before I really went back to writing about things like sexualized violence and politics um, so for example I wrote a, a very simple almost tongue-in-cheek article about why boys should be allowed to cross-gender empathize, why they should have more flexibility to do that. And um, I woke up to a hanging threat. And um, that was an example of, of what might be typical, but not as violent as sometimes the threats get. So yes, as a writer, um, I started to get rape threats, very graphic depictions of uh, hanging um, of people being beheaded, of people being raped, live rape videos. And it just occurred to me that as I spoke to more and more women writers, that this was happening and that we were all kind of folding it into our work life uh, and processing this in very different ways. Some people were very clearly experiencing secondary stress. Some people were feeding the space and choosing to do other things and other people we're confronting the problem. And um, so I became uh, an activist sort of by default, uh, mainly because people started sending me their own cases and it, there was nowhere for them to go. And this wasn't just writers anymore, but just everyday people who weren't in the public eye but were facing a wide spectrum of tactics of abuse. So I started working with social media companies uh, and legislators and um, other writers and activists. 
One of the things that anyone I think who has experienced these comments probably that frustrates them is that people just tell you to ignore the trolls or don't read the comments. Um, And I think that really glosses over how embedded the internet has become in our lives and the effect that these that these comments that this sort of abuse can have. And what was really interesting about your article was that we seem to be moving to a place where the effects of digital abuse, where the effects of seeing these kind of comments online is taken more seriously um, in terms of how companies are treating the role of comment moderation nowadays versus you know even 10 years ago. I, I think that's true. Um, I think I, I certainly have seen a real upswing uh, in companies' awareness in the last year, there's been a, a real peak in interest. Um, some of that, I think, comes from genuine concern uh, because I think people are now really understanding the free speech implications. Um, they weren't really making the link between the targeting of women and free speech. Free speech is uh, a valued characteristic of American public life. Uh, but sometimes the most valued characteristics of American public life aren't really associated to women, <laughs> with women the same way. Um, so if you talk about women's online abuse, people are like, oh, yeah, women are vulnerable. But if you start talking in terms of the public sphere and free speech, it kind of shifts the conversation into a realm where I think more people are interested. Yeah. And when talking about freedom of speech, which is obviously a huge issue here, one of the things that Um, doesn't always come up is that in having these completely open spaces in these spaces where harassment or abuse or certain language can flourish, it can actually inhibit other people's free speech because groups who are, you know, targeted a lot might become more hesitant to speak up or speak out because they're worried about the backlash. They're worried about what kind of harassment um, might result from their speaking out. So I think it's really interesting to look at this as an issue of free speech, both for the people who are you know, doing these things in the first place, but also in preserving a space where other people can speak up. And where do you think that line should be drawn between, you know, protecting free speech online and protecting the internet as this open place and not creating an environment that discourages other people from speaking up at all? So I I think that's the challenge everybody has, right? Because it's very difficult to capture the ambient hostility that's created by this kind of abuse online, right? There's a spillover effect, as you described, on people that are part of a, uh, part of a community. They see what's happening to one person, and uh, they don't want it to happen to them. And so I think what's interesting is, you know, five years ago, what you heard a lot in the tech world uh, was, well, we have to balance freedom of speech with safety. But, but what that... What that does is ignore the fact that for traditionally marginalized voices, so women, people of color, sexual minorities, freedom of speech and and safety are actually not juxtaposed that way. They are on the same side of the equation, right? We we actually have these quote-unquote real-world vulnerabilities that this kind of harassment leverages and historic discrimination that this kind of harassment leverages. So I would argue that there needs to be, in any one platform, in any one culture, corporate culture, a real appreciation of how disparately impacted different people are 
um, which means giving up the idea that these platforms are neutral, right? People interact on these na- on these platforms in very different ways depending on how other people identify them, which is why anonymity is important for people to express their themselves, right? A lot of people think anonymity is the root cause of the problem. Um, I would argue that anonymity really needs to be understood in more nuanced ways, um, and not as a root cause. Uh, but as an amplifier, because so many people really do need anonymity to be able to express themselves. Absolutely. Um, And another thing that came to mind when I was reading this is that you talk about how the majority of moderation is often managed and staffed by women. And I'm wondering if you know why that is. (laughs) Well, um, I believe that uh, the tech world is as sex segregated, if not more sex segregated functionally than the rest of the, the, the workplace, right? So we, we have a very sex segregated workplace. It doesn't necessarily feel that way because we see men and women everywhere, but basically women are clustered in lower paying, lower status jobs that are extensions in many ways of nurturing maternal functions, right? They, they kind of circle around very often a higher status man. So the number one job for women today is what it was in 1960, which is administrative assistant. Women are the majority of nurses, the majority of teachers. And so while there's been a lot of change in the workplace and women are kind of profusely working in many, many different areas, the fact remains that men tend to cluster in the higher status, um, higher paying uh, jobs. And we see that in tech too. And part of that is this idea that men make things. So they're creating the technology. They're the majority of engineers. They're the majority of um, people that get venture money. They make things and then women take care of people. And so moderation is an extension of the more traditional and linear customer service realm. And what you see is that men in Silicon Valley really do make up the majority of the engineering and tech world, and women make up the majority uh, probably almost across the board in the large companies of the policy, uh, customer management, content management, um, for lack of a better term, kind of hand-holding. What are we going to do about people and their feelings about their experiences and the brand? So that's that's how I think that kind of plays out. It's not unique to tech, but it certainly has this aspect of women doing the emotional labor yeah. that we couldn't do otherwise. Yeah, that, that came to mind when I was reading this, too, that there's this sort of parallel between the fact that women are often moderating comments and controlling what other people see and shielding people from, you know, the darkest aspects of the internet, which it, it runs parallel with the fact that they're still sub- disproportionately subject to emotional labor throughout society. Yes, I think that's true. And I, I mean, there are a lot of men doing this work. It may be that moderation staffs are 50-50 or maybe more men in some cases, but the work is definitely feminized work from the, you know, in the way that we're describing, and it has the attributes of feminized work. It's not as highly paid. Uh, it's not as highly uh, valued in terms of status and resources in an organization, especially in startups. Um, and at the larger companies, uh, women tend to head up these departments, right? They Like the women that we wrote about, uh, in those positions, they are responsible for that, what ultimately becomes a care function, right, in, in many ways, because you really are the bridge that brings together all the different functions in the company, from marketing to product development to customer service, 
the nexus of that is this idea of branding and how it plays out in these rules about speech. You mentioned in your article the Good Samaritan Act from 1996 that basically absolves um, these digital platforms from liability or accountability um, in terms of what's posted there. What might holding a platform accountable actually look like? So, you know, it's interesting where we draw those lines, right? Because very clearly platforms are accountable to certain like copyright, right? They absolutely right. have to, they, they cannot allow people to violate copyright. So as a society, we make value judgments about what we think is important enough to draw those red lines, right? So copyright is something that has monetary value. Human dignity does not have monetary value, right? We don't, we, we don't tend in our free speech traditions to prioritize human dignity and safety. That's a quite an American thing because we are a free speech outlier in the world. We have the most liberal and um, pronounced commitment to open speech anywhere. Um, and we see that in, in these debates over who can say what where all over the place, on colleges, on billboards, online. Um, but I think that this law, which was really structured to... Uh, enable the explosive growth of the internet, right? I mean, the idea was that if there were limitations put on these platforms, there was no way that they could grow the way they have grown. The question I think now is we're at a different phase of internet development, and um, so what do we do about that? Do we want to change the parameters? It takes a super long time, though, to change a law like that that's part of this gigantic Telecommunications Act. So I know you also, you've worked with companies um, to help combat digital harassment specifically. Um, is holding companies accountable something that can help curb not only, you know, the posting of really heinous content, but also harassment itself? Or what should the focus of that work be? Should it be on the user? Should it be on the company? So I think that, honestly, in certainly as we move forward and we're seeing more and more of this, there need to be really multidisciplinary work groups, right? That in that these companies need to be, and and many of them are, but they really need to be working with civil society organizations from around the world, because consumers have a lot of power. They have the ability to say, you know what, as members of this community, we reject these norms, and and it requires in many ways users to become activists right they need to they're already doing the labor i mean user content and the um effective impact of that content on other users is the greatest asset that these companies have they sell our behavior right they sell our likes they sell our pictures they sell our propensities to do certain things that's how they make advertising revenue but I don't think users think of themselves as laborers, and I also think they don't think of themselves in a new model way. I think very often they think, I'm a customer in a very old-fashioned, linear way. Somebody makes something, I buy it, I use it, they're the producer, I'm the customer. But in point of fact, we're all producing stuff, and we should be able to more effectively leverage the power of our own usage to make change, which is sort of what Jacqueline Friedman and Laura Bates and I did in 2013 when we confronted Facebook with a campaign um, called the Facebook Rape Campaign. And we pushed back and we said, you know what, you've been talking to people for years about rape jokes and rape memes and um, content that depicts graphic violence against women. 
Um, so now we're going to bypass Facebook and, and go straight to advertisers, which is what we did. Um, and 16, 17 advertisers dropped off in a couple of days, and uh, we entered into, a, a, I think, a, a very good working relationship with Facebook that has enabled uh, a lot of change. So there's a real tension because on the one hand, you have these private, the privatization of speech that's happening at these companies, but on the other, you have this unprecedented ability of users to define what it is they want. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been really fascinating. Oh, thank you very much, really. It was lovely to talk to you. The article Soraya co-wrote with Catherine Bruni is titled The Secret History of the Internet, and you can find it at TheVerge.com. Like every other person on the planet with feet, ears, and a groin, we're still reeling from the news that Prince died in his home late last week. While many of the tributes written in recent days have focused on his musical legacy, MTV News political reporter Jane Coaston took a moment to reflect on how Prince's music provided her with a roadmap to navigating complicated issues like gender, sexuality, and what it means to be queer. Here she is in conversation with senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox. Jane, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm good. So I wanted to talk to you about your Prince article. Uh, Maybe you could start by giving us a little background on what the piece is about. Well, I think for me, what I wanted to say was that, you know, I recognize Prince himself was not queer. And no one can tell you that you are queer. But I think Prince and some artists who were somewhat similar to him showed me how to be queer. And I think that it was his ability to be feminine and masculine and raunchy and religious and above all complicated. That was something that I had never seen before and something that I really wanted and I'd say needed to see um, when I was growing up as being, you know, kind of a young queer person who, you know, I definitely, you know, I said in my article that I felt kind of like the combination of a small boy and a very fancy lady. And I actually <laughs> talked to my mom, I actually talked to my mom after that piece. And she was like, I've always thought that too. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and actually, that's actually also a very good description of Prince in a way. He was a very small boy and a very fancy person, perhaps, like not so much a fancy lady, but, but small and fancy. <laughs> yes, Exactly. And so I really had the sensibility of that he put himself together. I think that, you know, he was coming, he was coming at a time, I think that, you know, the early 80s in music, there was more of a, people were definitely looking to be more adorned, like more, they're just more, more, more. And then, you know, for Prince to kind of maintain that same sensibility in the early 90s when it was kind of like everybody was getting into grunge and just, you know, showing up wearing flannel to the VMAs. Like, Prince would never do that. Prince was focused on being himself and crafting himself as he wanted to be and not as anyone wanted to see him. And he wanted to be fancy and he wanted to direct movies and he didn't particularly care if you didn't like that or didn't like his movies he wanted to be himself and he wanted to create that version of himself and i think that that's Mm -hmm. something that i really i looked to and found some level of inspiration from 
And I, I kind of want to drill down on this idea, like sort of the difference between like queer and gay and lesbian. Like, and that's because that's what I think is really interesting about your piece, right? It's that he was neither. He was just his own creation. Right. right? And I think that that's something, you know, I think that obviously as a gay woman, you know, I did see lesbians, I did see gay people around me, but he was himself. He was Prince. Like, he was this, you know, I think that he was who he was and he was kind of undefinable. Like, you even couldn't really say, I think if there had been a lot of people talking about, you know, oh, what kind of genre of music was Prince? Like, he was just Prince. You -hmm. know, you're seeing someone who could do Darling Nikki or the Dirty Mind album at the same time be at that same point a seventh day adventist and then later become a jehovah's witness like yeah there was a lot going on and so i think that there was a sense also i think especially you know i'm 28 so i was growing up in the mid late 90s like i think the most famous lesbians i could think of right now off the top of my head were ellen degeneres katie lang and i think that that's pretty much it and that just wasn't (laughs) that's not who i was that's not what i what i felt like i felt more like Prince. I felt like someone who wanted to be beautiful and then be with beautiful women. Like, I, mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever that meant to me when I was like 10 years old and trying to figure all of this out. Like you said, he was, he wasn't, you know, LGBT. He wasn't, you know, kind of what we think of as queer, but he wasn't how we think st- traditionally of being heterosexual in a way. And it's interesting because I think that that's a, that's almost a little bit concerning the fact that you know people being a very fancy straight man is something that people that is rare or that people would question or that people would look at and just be like oh that's strange like you know i um i think back to you know all the i i'm a history buff and i think back to the fact that you know we had entire generations of people in French aristocracy who were very focused on being very fancy French men who were straight men. And it just, it's so interesting that Prince is like this primary example of kind of being exactly who you are, your gender identity or your sexual orientation be damned. And I think that that's, I think that's really interesting. I think that's what made him sort of dangerous was his kind of undefinable everywhere sexuality. Right. Like, I mean, that's what made him really dirty in a way. Right. And I mean that in a good way. Like it wasn't, yes, there's the word masturbation in a song, which is, is what makes maybe people's ears perk up. But what, but there's a lot of people using bad words in the, in that time area. There's a, there's a lot of people being sexy, but he had kind of an unbound sexuality. Like it could go anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) And just this kind of, in a, a kind of sexy that's very much about wanting to be wanting to observe as much as he wanted people to observe him like in kiss he's like you know i want you to be i want to be your fantasy and then you can be mine like this idea mm-hmm. where it's not so much like you know he's coming at the same you know the early 80s you have like warrant or you have like Motley Crue or something where it's very much like you're looking at this woman you're looking at these people and no one, mm-hmm. you don't have to do anything. Prince is very much like, oh, I am involved. I am there. <laughs> I am, I am going to work hard for you. Then you're going to work hard for me. And it's going to be great. Like, 
uh, Doomy Baby, where he is singing in this falsetto about just like, he just really, 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 really wants you to have sex with him. Like, please, <laughs> please. And it's just like beautiful, slow song. And he is singing so high. And it's just, he is overwhelmed by how much he wants you to have sex with him. Like, it's not mm-hmm. him wanting to have sex with you. That is something mm-hmm. that, you know, we hear all the time. That's pretty much what pop music is in a sense. But it's very mm-hmm. much like, I really want you to want me. Please want me. And I think that that's something mm-hmm. that I don't think we've heard before. And I don't know if it's something we've really heard since. Like, it's a very interesting po- like positioning of himself and his sexuality as very much like, I need you to be as into this as I am into this. Please be into this. This is great. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it, I, I, I feel like I've seen it mentioned elsewhere, and definitely this is like an undercurrent of what you're talking about, which is that Prince's sexuality was also, in the, in, in the way that it was unbound, it included pl- pleasure for the person he was talking about and not oh, just yes. himself. Like, right. he wants to make you come, you know? Right. Like, it's not just like, <laughs> which is, again, like, you just don't hear that very much. He could make this tremendous music that reached so many people while espousing kind of a concept of sexuality that you just don't hear. It was like, I like women and I want that woman to like me too. Like I remember it's funny, like my 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 memory of Prince and the in the way that that played in with my adolescence, I have to say, was I think I was in grade school and we had just or I guess middle school and we had just started taking sex ed that had just become like part of our required, you know, health class. And uh, somehow after class, some guy came up to me and as a, he was trying to be, a, be mean to me and he said, I bet you're one of those girls that likes Prince. And I remember being like, oh my God, that's true. What does that mean? <laughs> like, I, I think that means what? that you're super cool. <laughs> Well, at the at the time, it was like it was super threatening. Like it was just not. It was like I I knew that was true, and I just I, I was like that means something about me. I mean, now I yes, I think I look back and 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 of course it means that I'm cool. But at the time, like it was a signal of like wait a minute, like yeah, that means something. And what does it mean? And it means that I'm somehow different. What is he trying to say to me? Right, um, and I think that that's an example <laughs> of just kind of. It's interesting to me that we're seeing a lot of reflections on how much people from, a, you know, across the political spectrum really loved Prince or really looked to his music. At the same time, when, you know, when Prince was just coming out, you're kind of seeing like the end of disco and the criticisms of disco from kind of a very masculine white audience as being kind of like gay faggy music as like oh you know real men listen to rock and roll or like you know that good time rock and roll where you don't have this producer driven very like queer sensibility that surrounds disco and you know you have like the disco demolition you have all that stuff going on and i think that it's interesting that prince was somehow able to take some of those kind of disco concepts, not just in sensibility, but in sound, like kind of the four on the floor beat, that funkiness, but also a lot of the queerness of disco, where it's very much about, you know, it's about sex, but it's about a a version of sexuality that's fun for all participants. But he made it appealing to an audience that includes people who, I don't know, now write for National Review or now consider themselves to be very conservative. And yet these are the same people who are listening to like, 
little red Corvette or something like that. You know, it's interesting how that messaging has shifted and how his audience was so broad, even though his message was kind of, you could argue that his message was very kind of divergent from, yeah, it's very different and subversive. One thing that kind of brought together all of his skills and, and all of what his appeal was, especially to young people, was the fact that he was so different in all these different ways, but he owned everything. He owned it right. in every way that you can mean the word own. <laughs> he owned his sexuality. Right. He owned his look. He owned his lyrics. He sold those lyrics, no matter if they made sense or not. They made sense Right, no. And I think that that's something, that's a sensibility that I really respect in that I think that um, people have been, not as much as I would think they would be, but I've been thinking a lot about how he would compare, in a sense, to maybe Madonna, um, and I feel as if pr- Madonna is much more reflective of whatever is going on at the time. Like her later out, like Confessions on a Dance Floor is much more EDM, but her earlier stuff is much more reflective of whatever, like the pop movements of the time. And she moves you a little bit further forward, but it's very much looking at, okay, what do people like right now? How can I move that a little bit forward? I don't know what Prince listened to on the radio. Um, I think that there was some quote that was saying that, um, Prince pretty much, you know, he knows whatever it is, he could do it better. So he doesn't really listen to like stuff that's on the radio or his old stuff. um, And so I feel as if he was very much of like, this is what I would like to do. If other people are into it, that's cool. But if not, that's fine. And I think you see that in kind of his side careers and the fact that he, you know, he'll start a band, end the band, start a new band, end that new band, and just be like, eh, this isn't working for me. I'm not going to do it. And I think that, you know, obviously there the later inflections of hip hop in his music. I think that's more just because he liked it and not so much that he was like, oh, man, hip hop's doing really well on billboard charts right now. And so I really reflect that, you know, he owned everything about himself, like you said. And it was more about who he was and who he, what he wanted than what he saw in popular culture or what he wanted to reflect, you know how he wanted to reflect that. So yeah, he, Prince owned who he was and Prince was Prince. Jane, I think that's a great place to wrap up. If people want to read the article you wrote about Prince and uh, ha- what he did for you um, and all the different ways he did it, I guess, where can they find it? Uh, they can go to mtv.com slash news. Uh, the article is called Prince Made Me Free. For a queer people like me, Prince was a roadmap. Thanks, Jane. No problem. Coming up, what it's like to bring comic books out of the golden age and into the modern era. Stick with us here on The Stakes. Comic books haven't always had a great reputation for inclusion or diversity, but over the past several years, one of the largest comic book publishers on the planet has been reimagining their world to look more like our own. The Marvel Universe in 2016 features a biracial Spider-Man, a female Thor, and a Korean-American Hulk. They've also brought on ta Coates to write a reboot of the classic 1960s hero, the Black Panther. Senior political correspondent Jamil Smith sat down with Marvel Comics editor-in-chief Axel Alonso. Axel, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? As editor-in-chief, uh, I, I oversee the comics division. I supervise 
all the editors who in turn supervise writers and artists from around the world who chart the destinies of your favorite superhero characters. If you're wondering why you've downloaded a politics podcast and we're talking to a comic book editor, um, I'm thinking that, you know, it, you can't escape the hype and the wonderful uh, articles that have been written about the Black Panther series. And that's what I really want to start off with. Um, now, despite growing up with comics, uh, I wasn't terribly familiar with black superheroes like Black Panther and like Luke Cage, for instance. Who is Black Panther for those who don't know? Sure. Well, the Black Panther is the first black superhero introduced in the pages of Fantastic Four back in 1963. His name is T'Challa, and he is the king of a fictional African kingdom called Wakanda, which is essentially the dream. It's a, it's a vision of Africa that never, ever um, suffered under the yoke of colonialism. Mm -hmm. It's prospered on its own. Um, in the Marvel Universe, it is the most technologically advanced society out there. Um, it's a warrior nation. Uh, it sends... Um, all invaders home in body bags. <laughs> uh, and um, it's a rich culture that's, um, uh, that's pure. Now, and one of the reasons why they're so technologically advanced, of course, is because they produce vibranium, which is the material that you see in Captain America's shield, among other things, right? Exactly. That's their greatest natural resource, um, and it's the foundation upon which they're built. But they're, they, they got a lot more than just that. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, there's some inherent political issues you know, with any comic that's called Black Panther that comes out in the 60s. No doubt. <laughs> so, um, you know, you have ta Coates, the winner of the National Book Award, MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner, uh, one of the foremost intellectuals and cultural critics out there. Why do you get him to write this book? It was meant to be. We were aware of ta through his writing at The Atlantic. We were aware he was speaking to one of the most important issues of our day eloquently. Um, and, uh, and we are, of course, aware that he was a hardcore Marvel fan. Uh, Ta-Nehisi uh, interviewed one of my editors, Sana Amanat, at one of his Atlantic talks, and we began the conversation there. Um, we're always looking for new writers, people uh, to, to come into our medium and tell new stories and pave the road to the future, and we saw no reason that Ta-Nehisi shouldn't be one of them. Uh, so we began talking, you know, broadly about what characters he might be interested in. Uh, I think he expressed an early interest in Spider-Man. We said, sorry, that's covered right now, but <laughs> rain check, rain check. And uh, we automatically just told him, look, you know, we are casting for a B Black Panther relaunch. How would you feel about that? And uh, he was very interested. Now, what are the major questions revolving around politics and race that you see the new Black Panther series confronting and that you see ta lending a, sp a specific lens to? This is a very turbulent time right now. And I'll be, I'll be blunt. The fact that ta is speaking to issues like Ferguson and Black Lives Matter is extremely relevant to this Black Panther. But by the same token, and ta would be the first to say this, Marvel Comics comment on the world through metaphor. He is not putting together a political tract. Um, this, is, this is a work of fiction about which I am certain ta worldview will become clear. Um, one of the things, Ta-Nehisi won us over at the, at the pitch stage when he came back with the million-dollar idea. Um, and what he said was, how can Wakanda, which is positioned as the most sophisticated, technologically advanced society in the Marvel Universe, abide a monarchy? It just doesn't make sense that a society this enlightened, this badass, would be able to abide a monarchy. And that hit us like a, like a hammer to the gut. And we said, examine that. And that's exactly what he's doing with his first story. 
Now, you also see the real attention that he pays to the development of black humanity, really. The, the, the depiction of, of, you know, this is a black man who's three-dimensional, who has fears, who has pride, who has all these different aspects that you don't necessarily see when he's making, say, a guest appearance with the Fantastic Four in 1963. How important was it for you to have a person like ta and also the artists involved flesh out the character from a human angle? Well, you are absolutely right. ta begins his first issue of Black Panther with T'Challa, the Black Panther, on his knees. Yeah. Um, and he's in the midst of a riot that's taking place in Wakanda. There's a revolution, homegrown revolution underway that's going to test him like he's never been tested before. And I think it was a very conscious decision on on, on, on Tanahasi's part to put T'Challa on his knees and put him in a position of, of vulnerability, which is rare for T'Challa. Um, you know, this is this is a, a fascinating story that takes place within Wakanda and has T'Challa dealing with a homegrown revolution. These are people, his own people, who are questioning everything that his society stands for, and in fact, what he stands for. And this isn't the kind of problem that he can punch into submission. He's going to have to look into the mirror and ask himself the same hard questions that any society looking to, to be fair uh, should, should ask itself. Why does it matter so much to us that not all superheroes are white guys? Well, I'll start here. I'm Hispanic. I grew up uh, reading comic books. I never saw a Hispanic hero. I saw in incredible white superheroes. Black Panther was, no lie, my favorite superhero. I remember being mildly disappointed when he peeled back his mask and I saw he was black and he wasn't Mexican. So, you know, I think we're all looking for representation. We like to see ourselves in the mirror. It's easier for us to get hooked into narratives if we can see our reflection somewhere. Now, that's not to say that a character like Peter Parker can't um, resonate with people of, of all sizes, shapes, creeds, and colors. But it helps if you can see yourself reflected a little bit more. So for us, it's been very important over the last several years to up the ante on this and to to double down on representation. Uh, it started with Miles Morales, the African-American Hispanic Spider-Man, uh, who's now swinging around the Marvel Universe as the second Spider-Man. Um, it broadened with uh, Kamala Khan, the new Ms. Marvel, a 16-year-old Pakistani girl who looks across the river at all the fantastic superheroes and is herself endowed with great power and the great responsibility that comes with it. And it's broad to include everything. You know, if you've seen the movies, you know, the, the Avengers movie, yeah. you know what Thor, Cap, Iron Man, all those look like. You go to the comics, it's a very different world. Thor is a woman. Right. Captain America is black. It's, it's, it's Sam Wilson, <laughs> the Falcon. Right. The Hulk is Korean American. Um, it's, it's, um, it's very, very different out there. And, and we think this is a really good and healthy development. How do you see the role of comics in commenting or in starting conversations about politics and identity? Well, it starts with a, a basic philosophy that, and it's in a sense apolitical, which is that our comic books are better when they reflect the world around you, the world outside your window. And if the world outside your window includes, you know, cops beating up on people unfairly, then maybe you have something to say about it. I think the most important thing is that we think it's very important to be relevant and to speak to the issues of the day. There are occasions when you can, you can, tackle those issues head on. And I think that Marvel Comics has always been on the right side of history in that regard. But at the same time, there's times when it's more effective to do it through metaphor, more effective to confront certain issues when you give the reader just a little bit of distance to reflect on themselves. I think that's why X-Men comic books have been so important for the last 20 years is that they've provided a safe vehicle for people to examine issues of race, otherness, um, sexual preference, sexual identity, 
um, with the safety of a metaphor, the mutant. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's a, it's a very, very cool tool for a creator to be able to get the point across without feeling like they're making a sermon. What ta and Brian Stelfreeze are doing on Black Panther is, is probably the head of the spear. Um, we were excited about this for the last year when we knew what he was doing. It's, it's, a, it's truly a, a magnificent sweeping story that's going to reposition T'Challa in the Marvel Universe that is bringing new foot traffic into the stores now. People are coming because they've heard about this. They want to see what is ta doing with this character. And, and it's just a perfect moment in time for a writer like ta Coates to be <laughs> writing a book about, about a character named the Black Panther that has something to say about the world right now. Right. So, so I'd, I'd say that that's at the forefront. I'd say that the diversity of our offerings right now is very important. I mean, I saw when I was in the comic book store to pick up the Black Panther, number one, I saw the Korean Hulk next to the black Captain America mm-hmm. next to the Afro-Latino Spider-Man, all in the Absolutely. same rack. Hey, putting a, an African-American man in red, white, and blue tights is an inherently political act. Whether you intended it to be or not, whether you have something right. political to say or not, it's going to raise eyebrows, and 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 uh, there's a certain responsibility that comes when, when you do that. Yeah, just the very presence of race. You know, the, you're not even necessarily have, have to talk about race directly. Just the very coloring, literally the coloring on the page creates conversation. Absolutely. Well, listen, when we when we unveiled Kamala Khan, the Pakistani-American Ms. Marvel, you know, the initial response to the announcement was with people yelling and screaming and and and, and claiming that either we were supporting terrorism or I, I mean it it was it was crazy. Wow. It, our feeling was, you know, this is a particular moment in time right now. Why can't a 16-year-old Pakistani-American girl be the new, next Peter Parker? And luckily, the creators, um, G. Willow Wilson and Adriana Fona, have rendered such a beautiful book with such a, 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 a fully articulated, real character. Willow Wilson is, is Muslim herself, mm-hmm. that it's resonating with people um, of all types. Right. You know, it's a success not because we found this, this, um, uh, this, this massive Pakistani-American uh, teenage girl audience. It's because her story connects with people the same way Peter Parker connects with people, including yourself, as you said before we came Yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah. I mean, Peter Parker, when I was a kid, I mean, I was, a, you know, the nerdy kid who, you know, who maybe, you know, had the unrequited crush on the, on the, on the girl next sure. door kind of thing. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a purely American narrative. And that does, that transcends race and that transcends religion and even geography. You brought up, Axel, the Miles Morales being introduced as Spider-Man, mm-hmm. replacing Peter Parker. When did that conversation really begin within Marvel? Well, the conversation started well before that. Um, when I first came to Marvel in 2000, um, I, I did a book called Truth, Red, White, and uh, Black, uh, which was the, a story that, um, that asserted that before Steve Rogers was injected with the super soldier serum, there was another man named Isaiah Bradley. Robert Morales and Kyle Baker rendered that limited series. And that was a play off the the, uh, Tuskegee experiment. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, That was certainly in the back of everyone's minds with that narrative. And and, and, uh, so, you know, we've always been aware of of, of race, class, social issues, and all of these things. Um, But I think what it comes down to is whether or not you feel you've got a story to tell. And um, and so the conversation started a long time ago. I think that if you look through through our, our body of work, at least as long as I've been there, you'll find a lot of stuff um, in peppered throughout our books. The next big conversation I can remember was the conversation about Miles Morales. We were we were having a story meeting uh, in which um, it was for the Ultimate Line, which was a parallel universe. Um, uh, which had a number of, of our superheroes, sort of analogs to our favorite superheroes. Mm-hmm. And we realized that the only way to end our story was to kill the Peter Parker of the Ultimate Universe. 
And 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 we realized, but if we're gonna if we're gonna do this, who's gonna wear those tights? Right. And and it invoked a conversation we'd had before about how beautiful it would be to see Spider-Man swing through the sky, go into his bedroom window, peel back his mask, and see that it was an African American kid. And so we just jumped on that. We talked further, and then Brian Bendis went home and percolated a bit, and he came back with a I thought an, a, an improvement on that idea, which was that he would he would be uh, like myself, biracial, mm-hmm. African American and Hispanic, and and Miles was born. Wow. Um, you know, again, this is the way things happen. And, and lastly, Axel, I just want to ask you about the hip hop variant covers. I know that you guys have a series of variant covers, and this series I thought was really phenomenal because it revoked all the hip hop albums of my youth: De La Soul, Nas, Illmatic. Can you tell us a little bit about how that idea got generated, and maybe you know what it's going to be like going forward? Um, this was a labor of love. Um, Marvel has a tradition of doing variant covers, covers that homage, you know, everything from fine art to movie posters. And I thought, why not do a series of variants that uh, homage and pay tribute to uh, the 30 years of outstanding album art for hip hop music? Um, I, I'm a hip hop head. It's a soundtrack to my life. I know it's a soundtrack to many of my artists and writers' life. It's what they listen to, what they head bob to when they're writing, when they're drawing, what have you. And, um, you know, there's always been some reflection of hip-hop in Marvel Comics, but it's always been a little bit like a whisper. Um, and I wanted to make it a shout. And we knew when we, we knew what we were unveiling with this all-new, all-different Marvel initiative with ta Coates and, you know, David Walker and Greg Pak and, uh, you, you know, Moon Girl and Devon, all the offerings that we had, we thought, what better way than to just announce this diversity through the covers themselves? So um, we, we set one rule for ourselves, which is that we would, um, every... Um, Recording artists would get one cover and one cover only, and uh, that we would span the 30 years, the various styles of hip-hop from, you know, current stuff like Drake all the way back to, you know, the original gangster rapper Schooly D from Philadelphia. <laughs> and um, it was a labor of love. We had the artists that attacked these were, by and large, hip-hop lovers, um, you know, people who, who live and breathe that music, and it was a lot of fun. We were, we were widely embraced. Um, one of the, one, if not the most ex- successful cover initiative we've ever done. And uh, we were embraced by all the artists themselves, from Eminem to Ice Cube to, uh, you know, Paz de Noose of De La Soul mm-hmm. uh, to The Far Side to Pete Rock. Um, we, we, uh, we've started a conversation that we intend to keep having. Let's put it that way. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. We're going to leave you this week with a little bit of a swerve. It's a spoken word piece from our own resident poet, Marcus Ellsworth, that might best be described as a flash fiction exploration of who Marcus is afraid may be lurking in the bathroom. We'd like to give a brief warning that this piece includes a description of physical violence. He was standing at the sinks when I came in, grinning, not smiling, but baring his teeth, staring into the mirror, not at his own reflection, but scanning the room, assessing every person who comes in. I want to leave, but I stay as still as I can, peering at him through the crack of the stall door. Across his chest, the strap of a holster is proudly displayed, declaring that just under his left arm, he cradles a Second Amendment promise, his answer to questions he's never bothered to ask himself. Wash your hands, I whisper, hoping that he will hear me and not hear me, that he will snap to reason and wrap up his business the way normal people do in normal public restrooms. Someone walks in, 
The man at the sink turns his head to look at them directly. His grin degrades into a sneer at this person, like a wolf sizing up someone who has entered its den. Just wash your damn hands and leave. I think of Anita Staver and her Glock patrolling bathrooms for so-called perverts. I think of a would-be sheriff in Texas promising to make John Doe's of anyone he thinks doesn't belong. The man at the sink is thinking of them too. That's why he's here. Something angry and fearful within me wonders, will they wash their hands of the blood that will be spilled? Will they wash their hands of the guilt from inspiring murder? Will they wash their hands of responsibility for planting these putrid seeds that are all too eager to take root and blossom from the barrel of a gun? Maybe his gun. I step from the stall. My stomach, a heavy knot. I know that I'm not the target he's looking for, but I still want him gone. I want this to be over, a nightmare, a misunderstanding. The water running over my hands brings me back to the moment. And the man standing over my shoulder. He can sense how nervous I am. You should wash your hands and go, I say. He leans in, unsnaps the strap holding gun to holster. A loud pop from the next room, the women's room. I look into the mirror at the man baring his teeth. His eyes meet mine and he speaks. We have to protect our women. This has been The Stakes. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned. We have lots of big ideas, a great big platform, and a bottomless well of political and social stories to draw from. I'm Holly Anderson. See you next time. The Stakes is a production of the MTV Podcast Network. You can follow us on Twitter at MTV News and look us up over at mtvnews.com.